Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor Podcast, brought to you by The Herald. I'm speaking to the party leaders, challenging them on their policies, their strategies. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you may even vote. Scotland's recovery should be in Scotland's hands. Our focus is on Scotland. The nationalists focus on separation. We're going to be asking people in Scotland to vote like our future depends on it, because it really does. Independence would be like Brexit on a rocket to Mars. Everything that Alba does in this election will be a positive contribution to building that independence supermajority. We can choose to focus on what unites us as a country, not what divides us. In this podcast, my guest is Alex Salmond, the former SNP First Minister who now leads the Alapa Party. I ask him about the economy, independence and his own character. Mr Salmond, thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. Go straight to the question that I've asked everyone else in this series, uh, the pandemic, and how would you rebuild the economy of Scotland post that pandemic? Well, certainly... We're more vigour than I've seen displayed by either Westminster or the Scottish Parliament thus far. I think the election is helpful to Scotland because it concentrates the, the mind of politicians. But when we unveil our uh, reconstruction package, it'll be more ambitious, it'll be more assertive, it'll be on a scale which I think is required to meet the economic tsunami which is approaching. Uh, nothing I've seen from Westminster or Holyrood to date it matches uh, the enormity of what requires to be done. Uh, I mean, in economic terms, this is a, a different world. Uh, and if we're going to emerge from it, not just uh, uh, battered and bruised, but, uh, but with uh, uh, a semblance of, uh, of recovery, then the scale of what's needed in a prolonged sense uh-huh. is much greater than what's been illustrated thus far. I mean, if you take what's done thus far, I mean, you, you might say that the economic measures that have been applied, particularly furlough would be the best example of this, are there to stop the bleeding. But at some point, the, the wound is going to be open again, and therefore the reconstruction requires this far more fundamental surgery than just a bandage. Let's talk about, let's talk, I'll talk about the spending policies in, in, in a few, few seconds. First of all, revenue. What's your strategy on income tax in Scotland? What's your strategy on, on local taxation? What's your income tax mainly? What's your, your, your overall thinking about that? In terms of what requires to be done right now, Brian, we're in a world where borrowing costs are lower than they've been in the modern era. Uh, and therefore, there has to be a reassessment of what's required in terms of debt and its ratio to GDP. Uh, and the most important thing is to make sure that the application of that borrowing goes to areas which are going to benefit the economy over the long term. And, and with great respect, fiddling a pencil to on income tax up, downwards or sideways is mm-hmm. not the issue. The issue is... How do you enhance the human capital and how do you rebuild the physical capital of the country? That's what's going to matter. You know, the old tax and spend economics are part of the past. Where we are now is major reconstruction that's required to provide the, the basis for a, a future economy. You, you, you say the tax and spend, the tax and spend policies of the past uh, are, are in the past, and yet I've seen a few of your emerging policies, uh, except it's not the full panoply, but I've seen a few, 
you know, universal free school meals, doubling the ed education maintenance allowance, and a £500 annual payment to every low-income household in Scotland. Now, they, they may be differential policies, but they're all in one direction. They're all in the direction of higher spending. How can that possibly be afforded when there's massive debt, uh, a higher deficit in Scotland, and we still haven't recovered from the, 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 the 2008 banking crisis? Well, I'm afraid that that is your question illustrates and listen, you know, all of us have been in that mindset for a long time, right? But we are now in a position where interest rates are effectively zero or very marginal. In that context, we should be borrowing long term as much as we possibly can. I mean, I know you used to dabble in economic thinking once upon a time, a long time ago. In that context, it's quite different from previous uh, contexts we've been in for many, many years. Uh, therefore, over the period of time, that means that government debt is officially uh, offered at no cost. Uh, because if interest rates are near zero, that is, and all you do is roll over that debt when the time comes. The task is not now to decide how you're going to finance spending programmes. That is obvious. The task is how to make sure the spending programs that you finance actually enhance productivity, human capital, and prepare for a new economy. So it's much more about discretionary spending than it is about the ability to raise cash. Raising cash is not going to be the problem. Spending it is going to be the key priority. And if I may say so, the overall lesson from the 2009-2010 Great Recession was, of course, that the austerity policies that were applied for 10 years afterwards were clearly deeply misguided, and the countries which didn't pursue such policies did substantially better than countries like the United Kingdom, which did. Now, the question is, is the United Kingdom, and therefore Scotland, going to be left behind again, or are we going to embrace a different sort of economics, taking advantage of the fact that there's huge amounts of public and private capital which are looking for investment homes. When we spell out our new economic policy, it's these things we should be driving. Is the, you've been critical of the Scottish government handling of, of pandemic and post-pandemic preparations. Is it, turning to their plans for the future, is there anything in the SNP policy programme you strongly dislike? Do you, or, or do you find yourself still in, in sympathy, if you like, with the party you, you used to lead? It's quite interesting. If you think about the, uh, I contributed, let's put it no higher than that, to making the SNP the dominant force in Scottish politics. Uh, If you remain a member, the first time I became SNP leader, the SNP had four MPs uh, at Westminster. And when I left the leadership for the last time, uh, I think we can probably say for the last time, as far as the SNP is concerned, uh, then the SNP had become the dominant force in Scotland. It's been fairly noticeable that the SNP have faced dislocated, powder puff, inept, weak, pathetic opposition uh, from the hodgepodge of unionist parties, Labour, Tory, Liberal Democrats. Uh, but they couldn't bust a paper bag as far as their opposition on social and economic policy is concerned. They've confined the opposition on the constitutional question where they're virtually hysterical. They talk about very little else, particularly as far as the the Conservatives are concerned. What the SNP actually needs is exactly the reverse in terms of opposition. What they need is an opposition which will be supportive, indeed more urgent on the independence question and critical, perhaps in a constructive and friendly way, but still critical, a critical friend on social and economic policies. 
I, I don't really know what the SNP's social and economic policy is at the present moment, apart from you know, motherhood and apple pie and wanting to do extremely good things. I listened to the manifesto launch. I heard some big claims, and then I, I looked at the numbers that were attached to them. Uh, and you know, you can, and they can make a big number by multiplying it by 10 years. Uh, is that going to change the economic social framework of Scotland? No, it's not. And perhaps actually what's needed now in Scotland is a critical examination of the social and economic policies of the dominant party and be more supportive, even more urgent, on the constitutional question. So what Alapa is offering is a total reverse from the unionist opposition. Uh, we're going to be cheerleaders urging on the constitutional progress and giving friendly, constructive, but critique of the social and economic programme of the SNP, which I don't think, in fairness, meets the scale of the challenge that Scotland's about to face. I'll talk about the, the amicability or otherwise in a moment, but let's talk about your, your new party. When, when did you first envisage setting up a new party, Alipa? Well, I didn't set it up. Uh, Laurie Flynn, uh, the former World and Action journalist, and a committee that he'd formed together of interested people set it up. Uh, I was invited by uh, Alapa, obviously, the Alliance for Independence, as it became. Uh, I think it was, uh, oh, sorry, I beg pardon, Action for Independence, yes. the Independence for Scotland Party, uh, the Scottish Independence Referendum Party, uh, and uh, a party called Scotia Futures. Uh, all invited me and, and kindly invited me to, to be a candidate in three cases to, to lead the party. One of these cases, luckily for me, or perhaps luckily for Alipa, let's see, it was the Alipa party. Uh, and looking at them all, it seemed to be that Laurie's ideas, uh, particularly in the constitutional framework that he set for the Alipa party, seemed to be the, the, the best thing that was needed. The idea... But you became leader, presumably, without there being a, a ballot of the membership. Well, given that it was really difficult, given that the membership didn't exist uh, until the interim committee made I, the... I, I, I accept that, but it is more common to become leader by, by a ballot of the membership rather than by, by a claim. By definition, Brian, you can't be elected by a ballot of membership until you've got a membership, and you can't get a membership until you have a public launch. But I'm happy to say all of which was provided for because Laurie is a very wise person in the Alapa Constitution, which if you don't have a copy, that's very free to read. Uh, so it provides for the appointment on an interim basis. Uh -huh. My formal position is I am leader of Alapa on an interim basis until the June annual conference, where we shall elect the office bearers of Alapa, the office bearers for the year, on a one-member one vote. Your party's only standing. That's fair. Your party's only standing on the, the, the regional list. You've got thirty-two candidates, four in each region. They're all ranked in order. I just wonder how was that ranking done? Presumably, there wasn't an opportunity for a membership ballot there. How was that ranking chosen? Well, as you rightly say, there clearly wasn't the opportunity for a membership ballot eh, because the party was publicly launched on a Friday, and the nominations had to be in by the following Wednesday. But again, that was provided for by def definition of the interim committee. So the committee that Laurie had established was charged with ranking the candidates. And of course, that constitution says the priority for Alipa is to stand on the regional list. You, you, you say you want to help what you've called the noble cause of independence. Why didn't you consult Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SNP, about the strategy and the arrangements that you've just described there? Why didn't you even inform her about it? Well, I don't think it's reasonable. Firstly, I wasn't a member of the Scottish National Party. 
uh, are therefore, uh, you know, the, the, Nicola was not my party leader uh, to consult. But I have to say that when I was a member of the Scottish National Party some years ago uh, and offered uh, my party leader private advice on a number of occasions, uh, I, I'm not certain that advice was, uh, was greeted with the full enthusiasm <coughs> with which it was offered on a number of subjects, particularly after the European referendum of 2016, which seemed to be something of a, a watershed. But you, know, but, be but, that you, you, but you take the point, you went ahead announcing this, announcing you were going to be working in tandem with the SNP, it was going to be the supermajority, but the SNP knew nothing about this, they weren't consulted in the slightest. Well, the, it's not, I think, common for Laurie Flynn or his committee, uh, or for that matter, myself, to consult another political party when you're launching a political party. I don't think there's a, well, I can't think of a precedent for that. I wasn't a member of the SNP. It wasn't the holding on me to, to resign a membership which I didn't possess. Uh, everyone else who came from the SNP made clear that they resigned from the SNP before they joined uh, Alipa. Yeah. But, that, but Ryan, believe me, I think you're asking, if I may say so, Questions which seem to be orientated in a world where the SNP was the one and only independence party. Uh, we're in a different world now. Uh, one of the lessons I learned back in 2012-2014 uh, was a mistake I made as First Minister and SNP leader. You know, as you're well aware, because you've been reporting on it for all of the time still, uh, I was a member of the SNP for oh, 40 years and more. I was leader of the SNP for 20 years. Therefore, it was quite natural for me, given that the SNP had done all of the heavy lifting politically in the cause of independence, to associate independence almost totally with the SNP. That was really, I mean, I love the SNP. I always will, uh, uh, for natural and, and proper reasons. Uh, but, of course, what I learned between 2012 and 2014, that was a major mistake. Under my leadership, I contributed to making, as we said, the SNP the dominant force in Scottish politics. The SNP won a sensational, earth-shattering, system-breaking victory in the 2011 uh, Scottish elections, as you remember. But the dial on support for independence didn't shift. The SNP went to 45% of the vote and swept the boards in 2011. We stood on the list, if you remember, as Alex Salmon for First Minister and swept the boards on the list, not saying two votes SNP, but giving people a reason for voting SNP on the second vote. We won that majority, but the dial on independence was stuck around 30% of the vote. Uh -huh. That dial did not shift, Brian until the high summer of 2014, when realizing we were facing a heavy defeat in the referendum, I took the quite deliberate decision to embrace what was happening on the ground of seeing a much wider yes movement than simply one controlled by the Scottish National Party. Yeah. Was that multifarious grassroots variety of opinion upsurge of interest and in independence that in my estimation carried the, the independence vote forward from 30%, as you remember, to perhaps touching 50% within days of the poll, and then back to settle at 45%. But the lesson I would take from that is that the independence movement is strengthened when it is carried forward by a variety of opinions 
as opposed to being confined in the ranks of one you, with you, you you say, Mr. Snowman, you say you love the, the, the SNP from your history. In it, that doesn't seem to be reciprocated by the current leadership. Nicola Sturgeon says she wants nothing to do with you or your party. What's your opinion of Nicola Sturgeon? Well, there are many times in life when love is unrequited, Brian, and I'm sure you and the rest of us may well have experienced that in your life. Who knows? And perhaps politically, that's just one of these occasions. You say she broke the ministerial code and yet you want to work with her. I mean, it's one of the, the most serious accusations that can be made against the First Minister. Well, you should have put that in the past tense, Brian, because I've said I'm conducting an election campaign which is about the future of the country. Yeah. Uh, I've said that I'm accepting the result of all the court cases, inquiries, investigations and the rest of it. The bits I like and the bits I don't like, I'm accepting them and moving on. And I'll I suggest everybody I'll else does the same. I'll come to that in a moment. I mean, but you, you say she's dragged her heels on independence, but you, I just reminded us, you, you gained majority power uh, and, and yet in 2011 and yet didn't hold a referendum on, on, on independence and, until two and a bit years later. It's almost exactly the time scale that Nicola Sturgeon is envisaging now. Yeah. She's emulating uh, your proposal. I disagree. I initiated discussions and uh, negotiations with David Cameron the week after the 2011 election, Brian. And I know exactly when I did it, because I went to London to conduct these negotiations and uh, Mr. Cameron didn't want to see me. <laughs> and uh, I had to start the negotiations with Mr. Osborne, who was Chancellor. But, but isn't it reasonable to sort the pandemic first? You talk of beginning negotiations on day one of the new Scottish Parliament. There's a small matter of 10,000 dead, isn't there? Well, uh, are you suggesting some responsibility? I have for the 10,000 dead. Well, then let's take the point rationally, Brian, shall we? The argument you made about 2011 is clearly misplaced. We are arguing as Alapa that we should begin negotiations on independence in Scotland the week after the Parliament convenes. Alapa, if the people choose to send us into the Parliament, will put forward a motion to that effect to direct the Scottish Government to open negotiations on independence with the Westminster Government, similar to the tactic I used in 2011. I think the idea we should postpone that to 2023, 24, 25, 26. It seems to be suggested, and after today's manifesto launch, that seems to be the joint position of the SMP and the Green Party, is wrong-headed for this reason. If we believe, as I hope most independent supporters do, that independence is a really crucial thing for the future of Scotland, a really, really important thing, and therefore that Westminster is not the best people to leave in charge of recovery from the pandemic, no more than they demonstrated great skill during the pandemic, then you would want an independent Scotland to be in a position to have charge of the key levers of that recovery, uh -huh. as opposed to leaving them in the hands of Westminster with Could, the bill in the work. Even if we start negotiations the week after the election, as I think we should, it's going to be some time before we get to an independent Scotland. And would there have to would there have to be, Mr. Salmon, would there have to be a constitutional referendum or could independence be obtained without that? Independence could be obtained without that, obviously, as has happened in many, many other countries where another democratic test has been accepted. But a constitutional referendum was your policy when you led the SNP. Indeed, for goodness sake, it was your idea. Well, uh, to be absolutely correct, uh, you're absolutely right. 
uh, and therefore I'm in a rather good position to know both the advantages and disadvantages of that policy. As you remember, and perhaps we are the only people in Scottish politics, practitioners still as I am, commentators still as you are, who can actually remember that before I became leader of the Scottish National Party, there was no referendum policy. In fact, some people might argue there was no policy at all on how you obtain independence. And firstly, I introduced, along with Jim Sillers, the idea of seeking a mandate to negotiate and have a subsequent referendum. But I'm saying to you, Brian, being the person who devised the referendum strategy, I'm in a reasonably good position uh, to say in these circumstances that we have now, there are a number of routes forward mm-hmm. for a parliament seeking to persuade an unwilling Westminster government to engage in negotiations to find a satisfactory settlement of how you decide the independence question. Mr Salmon, we've talked about policy, we've talked about strategy and tactics, but political leadership is also about character, and you have faced question marks over your character. Is there anything in your conduct towards women which you now regret? Well, I uh, was judged by a jury, Brian, and uh, I'm arrest on the result of a predominantly female jury in front of a a lady judge. I'm surprised, actually, because I'm told various points that I I need to apologise. If you may remember, because I know you study these things closely, an apology was made almost 10 years ago, not not for what I was charged with, because the jury disposed of that, but an apology was offered and accepted these 10 years ago and repeated during the court case last year. The jury has decided, Brian, the matter is closed. And if it also makes you, I know you have no responsibility these days for the BBC, but there's a lot of fair-minded people in Scotland who are getting rather tired of the BBC trying to retry a case which was decided by the jury. Let's not talk about the criminal case. Let's talk, as you just did there, about the earlier internal inquiry by the Scottish Government into two complaints against you. Nicola Sturgeon told the Holyrood Inquiry, which you've referred to as well, that you gave her your version of one complaint and you said, indeed, as you've just mentioned, that you'd apologised for that behaviour. Miss Sturgeon said what you described constituted, in her view, deeply inappropriate behaviour, deeply inappropriate behaviour, and yet you expect her to work with you? That's not feasible. Well, I'm afraid Miss Sturgeon's memory of that meeting is mistaken. Uh, and... Uh... I'm quite sure at some point, no doubt in the future, long after this referendum campaign, I might set out the full context of that discussion and remind the First Minister of the other things that were discussed about inappropriate behaviour, not mine, but of other people. But then, of course, unlike the First Minister, I think we're far better to concentrate on the national rather than the personal. What I would say also, Brian, since you want to talk about the Scottish Government's conduct, That was also judged in a court, not in the highest criminal court in Scotland, but in the highest civil court in Scotland, where the government's behaviour was found to be unlawful, unfair and tainted by a palm bias. If I may use the palm bias, a conspiracy theory of mine, and the word conspiracy, as you're well aware, has never been used by me, is the judgment of the court of session. You, you, so you, that is why, given that the civil courts of Scotland and the criminal courts of Scotland yeah. have made a decision, 
How can you work with Nicola Sturgeon when you've you've said in this interview that that she is falling short on independence? You've said in this interview she's falling short on response to the pandemic. You've said previously that uh, she has broken the ministerial code, and you've said in this interview that she has been misleading and possibly lying uh, in the remarks that, that she made to that inquiry. And yet you still expect her to work with you again. It's, I put it to you: that's not a, that's not a starter. It's not feasible. You can check the record, Brian. I haven't said a word about Nicola Sturgeon falling short on independence. I'm quite happy to explain my differences of opinion and the Aleppo Party's differences of opinion with the SNP on the issue of independence. And in terms of falling short in the pandemic, I haven't said anything about that. What I've said is that the recovery plans I've seen thus far for Westminster and Scotland don't meet the scale of the economic challenge. Now, political parties are entitled to put forward policies in a constructive way, which can be compared with the policies of the government and other parties. In the context of independence, what the Alpha Party offers is urgency. Support for the concept of independence and opposition, which provides that, would be very welcome in Scottish society, very welcome indeed. But an argument that this is not something can put onto the hereafter, it's something for the here and now. In the context of economic policy, what we're saying, and we'll be publishing next week, is that the scale of economic action that needs to be taken goes far beyond anything as I have seen as yet it, from the economic perspectives being offered, either by Westminster or by Hollywood. But, it, but if, if she believes that the behaviour towards a woman that you described was deeply inappropriate, it's going to be really difficult for her to work with her. And yet you're talking about loving the SNP and working alongside them in, in the pursuit of the noble cause of independence. Again, it's not serious. Well, two things. Firstly, I've never said I was the SNP and the SNP was me, and I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon wouldn't make that mistake. No. Uh, secondly, <laughs> luckily I'm not being judged by Nicola Sturgeon, but by the highest civil and criminal courts in Scotland. Uh, thirdly, if I'm prepared under the circumstances that the judgments have been offered by the civil court and the government, if I'm prepared to say, look, it's time to put the personal behind us and the national in front of everything, then so I believe should everyone else. But I'll tell you something else, Brian. What people say before elections is one thing. Generally speaking, all rational, sensible politicians, and certainly all successful politicians, and Nicola Sturgeon has been an extremely successful politician that I've ever met, had one characteristic in common. They tended to accept the verdict of the people. And you think think she would cut a deal in the event that you you hold sway? Let's have the people judge whether they want to send Alapa into the Scots Parliament. And if I go into the Scots Parliament, we have no intention. I mean, I may be overruled at the June annual conference, uh, but I certainly have no intention of seeing Alipa as a party of government and coalition, where I see the role of Alipa is providing constructive urgency on the constitutional question and a critique of the social and economic programme that's necessary to bring Scotland into recovery from the pandemic. I'll come, come to that in a moment, but still on character, still on character, Mr Salmond, there's been criticism of you for broadcasting a programme on RT or Russia Today, your critics say that that channel is Kremlin propaganda. Yeah, well, the problem is, Brian, that I've done the programme for three years. Now, if somebody can point to any programme that I broadcast in the three years, independently produced, of course, as you know, by Slange Media. Yeah, not, not, not your programme, the channel that, that you're, no, no, it, it is said I, that you're giving I, I, validity I, 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 to the channel. If anyone can point any aspect of any one of these programmes which would justify the criticism of the programmes that I and Tasmina Amin 
produced for Slams Media, which will then appear on the RP platform. Any one of the programmes that I have control over and suggest this is somehow propaganda, but it's not open to a variety of points of view. Nobody's saying that. Your critics are saying, for example, that because you 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 are you are earning money from Russia today, which they say is criminal propaganda, they say that is why, for example, on the Salisbury poisonings of Sergei and, and Yulia Skripal, you're not prepared to criticise the the potential Russian involvement in that. Well, firstly, it's not true, Brian. I was criticised for my attitudes uh, to Russia because I'm afraid I believe. That some, not yours, but some attitudes to uh, to Russia have been for many years in this country affected by what could generally be described as Russia phobia. Incidentally, Russia phobia, as you're well aware as a student of history, is, is something that runs deep, particularly in English society, over many, many centuries, long, long before when, when there were czars in Russia, uh, as, uh, through the communist period into the current period. It's not something which has had parallel in Scottish society, as I'm sure you're also uh, well aware. Uh, so I was criticised, if you remember, when I was First Minister, long before I produced a programme that uh, appeared on the RT network, uh, because people thought I was too, uh, how shall I put it, friendly towards Russia. Ironically, of course, because it wasn't me as First Minister who asked President Putin to intervene in the referendum, uh, but David Cameron as Prime Minister who asked President Putin reportedly to intervene on behalf of the, the no side. So my views on these things are not affected uh, by the fact that I, I produced a programme which is broadcast in RT. Uh-huh. My views, which may be controversial, which may not be the mainstream views, but it may not be the majority views, are taken as I see them. And incidentally, the only reason I refuse to discuss them is I will not be dictated to by a public service broadcaster, which unfortunately, particularly when you're leaving it, has become a state broadcaster of the BBC, who believe they're entitled to not give a new political party, which is registering parliamentary support, a fair hearing, and then on the few occasions they invite it to be broadcast, say that the thing they want to talk about is Russian foreign policy, as opposed to the conduct of a Scottish election. Okay. So I think I'm entitled to make that point. We've, we've talked about strategy, I say, and about policy, but just just about, about the, the the poisonings in, in in Salisbury. Why will you not accept the commonly held view, the one evinced by the UK government, that these poisonings were done by Russian agents? Well, I don't know. I, I've said on other media. In fact, I said it yesterday on the uh, on the media, for example, that I, I don't think that the GRU or the the GU, as it would be now, the two people who've been associated with the GU, let's, let's put it as broadest, within Salisbury uh, to uh, measure the size See of the cathedral. The cathedral. Yeah. The cathedral. Yeah. I, I don't think that's a credible explanation. So they were there to poison the, the street balls? No, not necessarily. I think it's a leap from that, Brian, to say, A, that they were responsible for the poisoning, and secondly, to say that that was directed by the Kremlin. What I do also say is the international authority, which is judged, has said that Novichok substances should be now included in the banned list of chemicals, and I heavily support uh, that uh, undertaking and criteria. But, Brian, you'd be making a great mistake uh, not to believe that my assessment, which may be the majority view or not, I suspect it's not, is based on anything other than trying to judge on the evidence that I have seen, uh, as opposed to any... I really, I mean, I've known you for a long time, Brian, and you've known me for a long time, uh, and I think you can take that as true.
let's let's turn to to these these elections, May six elections. You're you're seeking to be elected again to the the the, the Scottish Parliament, and yet you've apparently described in an interview with supporters of independence that the, 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 there's a the possibility that you characterise that Hollywood Parliament as a Parliament of numpties. Now, that's hardly the way to win friends and influence people. Well, I'm sure you recognise the reference, Brian. I was referring to Eddie Morgan's poem, uh, A Parliament of Fierties We Do Not Want, uh, which I know that you... You translated it into numpties, uh, which is even even worse. I I mentioned a, a number of people who were exceptions to that, who are fine parliamentarians. I mentioned, for example, that the fine parliamentarian, somebody I haven't always agreed with, but as you're well aware, Alec Neil, who is a, an exemplary parliamentarian. But I, I did say that the Scottish people are parliament anomalies we would not want. And the Scottish people don't want a parliament anomalies. You think they've got one at the moment? My thought about the parliament at the present moment, the founders of the parliament, I'm talking about the Constitutional Committee, which you may remember. One thing we held in common, an agreement between Henry McLeese, the academics who are on the committee, and myself, is that we wanted to build a structure of the parliament which allowed more uh, more effective dissent, particularly on issues of how shall we describe conscience. Uh, and and I, you know, look, I accept that when I led a minority administration in particular, uh, there was a huge amount of discipline in the ranks of the forty-seven SNP members. But I also tell you that was self-discipline. I was told there's a pub quiz question, Brian, on the go at the present moment in SNP circles, which says, what is the difference between Gordon Wilson's leader of the SNP, Alex Salmond as leader of the SNP, and John Swinney as leader of the SNP, with regard to the late and great Margaret MacDonald? And the answer to the question, of course, is that both Gordon and John ended up expelling Margot from the Scottish National Party as opposed to Alex Salmond, who brought her back into the SNP in time to contest the Scottish elections of 1999. Uh, because to me, it would have been unthinkable to have a Scottish election without the ability of someone who was of independent mind having the ability to contest that election. Uh, and therefore, while I on many occasions did not see eye to eye with Margot. I always appreciated her contribution uh, to the Scottish Parliament in a number of causes, some of which were unpopular, but nonetheless needed to be vented. And frankly, I was personally delighted when she succeeded at her election uh, as an independent uh, MSP. Now, I'm merely saying the Scottish Parliament of late seems to me to have lost the characteristics of a Margaret MacDonald and have, and perhaps I was being unkind, uh, perhaps have verged on the adaption of the Eddie Morgan poem, a parliament of numpties is not what we want. Finally, Mr Salmon, finally, you, your own future, you plainly hope to be elected as an Alapa MSP, we, we, take, we, we, we take that as Take that as right. Everybody standing for election eventually convinces themselves they're going to be elected, and I'm sure you're you're of of, of that hope as well. Do you do you see yourself ever returning to the ranks of the party you say you love, the the, the SNP? Well, I, I think that boat may have sailed. I mean, if you'd asked me that a year or so ago, and uh, I would have hoped and believed that uh, an invitation in that respect might have been offered. If so, it would have been accepted. And now I'm committed to the project that Laurie Finn enunciated to me. <laughs> Look, 
let's we explain it this way, Brian. I did a press conference yesterday with 104 journalists internationally for the Foreign Press Association around Europe and the world, right? Not one of the European journalists who asked me a number of profound questions about Scotland's future and the conduct of a referendum campaign and all sorts of other things, not one of them asked me about the variety of parties who might be supporting independence. Because each and every one of them, of course, have parliaments where exactly that happens. You know, in Norway, I think it's six, Sweden, seven, Finland, eight, I think 15 in Denmark because of the workings of a party-less proportional system. I think in some senses, Brian, we've still got a hangover from first past the post. It is of great relevance to the independence movement that we have an independence-supporting list party in Alapa urging forward as a priority the case for Scottish independence. And rather like the multifarious, glorious grassroots yes campaign of the high summer of 2014, I think that will be of advantage in shoving the dial of independence forward. And if I was to say anything about Alapa as to what it really is, uh, then in a great sense, it's the reincarnation, the rebirth in political party form of, of that yes movement from that high summer of 2014. Absolutely, finally. Do you see yourself ever returning in whatever party, in whatever guise, as first minister at any stage? Well, my objective is to lead Alapa as the interim leader uh, through this election campaign and to register success in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, that is the the full summit of my present ambition. Alex Simon, thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's a great pleasure, brother. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. We're giving you the chance to get exclusive access to even more insight, analysis and opinion with a Herald subscription. Take 20% off an annual rate with the code HERALDNEW2021. This offer is for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rate unless cancelled. And sign up to our free evening politics newsletter, Unspun, to get snap analysis from some of our top contributors every day. Head to heraldscotland.com for the details.